0: happening now. Breaking news. The full House of Representatives just formalized the impeachment inquiry of President Biden as Republicans seek to move the probe forward. The vote coming hours after Hunter Biden defied a GOP subpoena to testify behind closed doors, accusing Republicans of lying over and over about him and his father. Also breaking, a federal judge is pausing. Donald Trump's 2020 election interference case while major appeals play out. The order could delay Trump's scheduled March trial date, potentially pushing it closer to election day. And President Biden meets with the families of American hostages held by Hamas amid new fractures in his relationship with the Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu over the war in Gaza. Welcome to our viewers here in the United States and around the world. I'm Wolf Blitzer, you're in the Situation Room. Let's get right to the breaking news. House Republicans putting an official stamp on their impeachment inquiry of President Biden just moments ago in the midst of a subpoena showdown with his son, Hunter Biden. CNN's Melanie is following it all for us up on Capitol Hill. Melanie, give us the very latest.
1: Yeah, there was a big vote here in the House just moments ago. The House Republican Conference voted in uniform to formally authorize their impeachment inquiry into President Biden, potentially bringing them one step closer to eventually impeaching the president. Now, every single House Republican voted in support of this, so that is a big win for leadership. And this inquiry, we should note, has been already going on for months after former Speaker Kevin McCarthy unilaterally opened this inquiry back in September. At the time, they didn't have the votes to be able to formally authorize authorize this inquiry. Speaker Kevin McCarthy at the time opted to just forego that step, But a key turning point in recent weeks was this White House letter that said they don't view this inquiry as legitimate because there wasn't a formal vote on the House floor. So Republicans really hoping to strengthen their hand in court with this vote today and also looking to show some momentum for what has been a struggle for them with their impeachment probe. But it is far from certain that Republicans are going to have the votes to actually impeach the president. They have struggled to prove that Biden profited off his son's foreign business deals or took any official actions because of those deals. And so that is why we still have key swing district Republicans saying they are not sold yet on articles of impeachment. Wolf.
0: So, Melanie, what's the next step right now for House Republicans in their investigation of Hunter Biden?
1: So, the Chairman of the House Oversight Committee and of the House Judiciary Committee are planning to start contempt proceedings for Hunter Biden after he refused to appear for a closed-door deposition this morning. But Hunter Biden did say he was willing to testify publicly and that he just didn't want his testimony to be selectively cherry-picked and leaked by the Republican committee. And even though Hunter Biden did not show up for that closed-door deposition today, he did appear for some remarks and addressed the press right outside the Capitol earlier today. Let's take a listen to what he had to say.
2: I have been the target of the unrelenting Trump attack machine shouting, Where's Hunter? Well, here's my answer. I am here. There is no evidence to support the allegations that my father was financially involved in my business because it did not happen. I am here to testify at a public hearing today to answer any of the committee's legitimate questions.
1: So some pretty forceful and remarkable remarks there from the president's son, who we haven't heard a lot from at least publicly. But the showdown now is set to escalate between Hunter Biden and Republicans here on Capitol Hill in the days and weeks ahead. Wolf,
0: Melanie's an up on Capitol Hill. Thank you very much. Let's get to the breaking news now in Donald Trump's federal election interference case. The judge ordering a pause until major appeals play out, potentially delaying Trump's March trial date. Your CNN senior crime and justice reporter, Caitlin Poland's Caitlin, why is the judge making this move?
3: Well, Wolf, essentially, she has to. She doesn't really have another option. Because in Donald Trump's criminal case, before he goes to trial, the courts have to figure out two things if Donald Trump can even be tried, he was already tried by the Senate, is that double jeopardy now that he's charged again uh, in a criminal court of law? So they have to decide that. And also they have to decide a question about presidential immunity. Is Donald Trump protected from being charged with any crime for something he did while he was president, something that he may argue was part of his role as the president of the United States? Now, All of this is up in the air. There's a lot of wheels turning in the courts right now. What's happening at the trial level before Judge Tanya Chutkin in Washington, D.C., is Trump essentially wanted her to cancel everything, pause everything. Uh, The Justice Department said, no, we're actually doing a bunch with appeals. They're going to the Supreme Court. They're trying to get an order very quickly determining what is happening here. And what Judge Chutkin said is the trial date is still standing. It's still March 4th. But that doesn't mean that the rest of the things that are happening in this case don't have to pause while the Supreme Court determines if they want to do anything, what the appeals court above her might do. And so now, essentially, all of the things that Donald Trump's lawyers would have to do to show up in court to determine, uh, to get to trial, they're not going to have to do that right now. But there's still a gag order over Trump, and there's still bail conditions, and this case still exists, and the trial date still is in March.
0: Very interesting. Caitlin, the Supreme Court, meanwhile, is taking up a different issue that potentially could impact Trump's criminal charges. Tell us about that.
3: Right. The issue that the Supreme Court decided to take today is a question of how the Justice Department uses the charge of obstruction, criminal obstruction against January 6th rioters, and other people. So Donald Trump is one of the people charged with this particular crime, obstruction of the official proceeding that happened on January 6th at Congress. But in this case, there is a violent rioter who has gone through the appeals process and now is before the Supreme Court, asking them to look at whether the Justice Department even can charge people with obstructing the official proceeding of Congress as it relates to what happened on January 6th. So whatever the Supreme Court does there, it very much could affect Trump because they're going to be meditating on the use of this law and what happened in that Capitol riot Obviously, not just uh, the rioters themselves are people that are being looked at by prosecutors. Trump, too, is charged with this crime. So whatever they say could very much impact his case. It
0: certainly could. Caitlin polance reporting for us. Thank you, Caitlin. Uh, let's bring in our legal and political analyst right now. Elliot Williams, how significant is this order from Judge Chutkin acknowledging that she no longer has jurisdiction over parts of this case?
4: Well, it's significant, Wolf, but it was absolutely the right move, and Caitlin touched on this a little bit. It would be impossible or, or grossly unwise for a judge to move forward with a case that might have some sort of big legal problem in it. And even if it doesn't have a legal problem in it, you have to give an appellate court, a higher court, the opportunity to at least consider, have considered the questions uh, that, that are outstanding in the case. And so she sort of had to do this. Um, it would have been a pretty profound mistake if she'd allowed the trial to proceed and then learned from an appeal court that the whole thing should have never happened in the first place. So most judges, I would think, would have would have taken the same step. And I think, you know, we've talked about this quite a bit on air over the months. This this was sort of inevitable.
0: Interesting. Uh, Ellie Honig, how long could it take for the appeals process to play out? And what are the
2: chances the case begins in March as currently scheduled? Well, Wolf, I think this makes it highly unlikely that that March 4th, 2024 trial date holds. And here's why. Judge Tutkin has now ruled, and I agree with Elliot correctly, that I can't do anything while this immunity issue is making its way through the appeals courts. And if we think about how long that could take, even if this goes at the fastest possible pace, even if the Supreme Court grants direct review, even if they expedite it, we're looking realistically at a final decision from the Supreme Court, I think at the earliest in February. And you can't come back from that and then restart and deal with all the complicated issues that you have to deal with, pre-trial discovery, pre-trial motions, starting in February, and then start a trial three weeks later on March 4th. So I think as a practical matter, this is gonna require the judge to move that March 4th trial date back at some point.
0: Gloria Borger, Trump's attorneys are arguing against an expedited appeals process, writing, and I'm quoting now, this proposed schedule would require attorneys and support staff to work round the (laughs) clock through the holidays, inevitably disrupting family and travel plans. It is as if the special counsel, quote, growled with his Grinch fingers, nervously drumming, I must find some way to keep Christmas from coming, but how, end quote. What's your reaction to that?
5: Well, it's kind of hard to believe that's in a legal brief, but there you go. Uh, now we've seen it. Uh, look, they they want to delay. They The rest of the brief was talking about how there shouldn't be a rush to judgment. This is an important case. And um, you need to have give the time for the council to to do their jobs uh, and for due deliberation, (laughs) et cetera, et cetera. So, look, you know, the the Trump team, as we've been saying over and over and over again, is about delay. And so that was, uh, you know, just part of their argument, I guess, Wolf. But there's no doubt where they're headed on this. And Judge Chutkin's ruling today, uh, you know, is is good news for them. Very good news for them.
0: A very creative legal writing, I must say. <laughs> uh, Elliot, let's turn to this other very significant legal development for Donald Trump today. The U.S. Supreme Court saying it will consider whether a federal obstruction law is being properly used in the January 6 cases. How does this potentially impact Jack Smith's federal election subversion case?
4: Well, it's not uncommon for uh, provisions of laws to be taken up to the Supreme Court, partly because laws are written in a somewhat open-ended and vague way, and lawyers, prosecutors, defense attorneys apply individual cases to uh, to laws as they've been written. This is never, uh, as, as in so many areas related to Donald Trump and January 6th, uh, this has never really been tested, uh, the, sort of the scope of the obstruction law. And the, the, the particular law, as it was, was crafted, was written in the context of financial fraud, to be quite honest. Um, and certainly, there may be questions as to its application here. Now, the court may well rule that um, all of these obstruction cases related to January 6th can still go forward. But sort of as we were saying earlier, the only entity that can really decide that is the Supreme Court. It's not for uh, even even the lawyers in the case to decide. And so it could have a profound impact on the case. And we'll just have to see how the court ultimately decides it.
0: Yeah, very important point, uh,
2: Ellie. What are the what are Special Counsel Jack Smith's options here? Well, well, f- I see three options for Jack Smith here. None of them great, by the way. The first option is to go ahead, try the case. Two of the four counts that he has charged Donald Trump with, as Caitlin pointed out, could be in jeopardy with this Supreme Court ruling. So option one, try the case, hope for the best, and then hope the Supreme Court doesn't throw out those cases. But it could be that the Supreme Court then has to come back and say, no, that trial was no good. We throw it out. That would be disastrous. Option two, Jack Smith can just drop the two obstruction charges, proceed on the other charges. I don't think he's likely to do that. I think that would be a concession and a sign of weakness. I think Donald Trump would absolutely seize on that as a massive victory. And then option three is to wait until the Supreme Court rules, so then he'll know and try the case. But now we're back to the timing issue. But it wouldn't surprise me to see DOJ ask the court to expedite this one as well so they can get a ruling from the Supreme Court, know if they're on firm ground, and then try the case.
0: Uh, Gloria, if this case is pushed back, possibly to 2025, that's a big win for Donald Trump, right?
5: Oh, it's what, they're, it's what they want, of course, you know, because... The the thinking goes that if Donald Trump were to be elected president of the United States, then he could just get the charges dropped. He could fire Jack Smith, for example, and then the public would not have had the opportunity to hear any of this uh, evidence. And so I think, you know, this this is this is their goal to put it off after the election.
0: Interesting. All right, guys, thank you very, very much. We're watching all of these important developments and just ahead the U.S. Supreme Court will consider restricting access nationwide to a widely used abortion drug. We're going to take a closer look at the potential impact over a year after the high court's bombshell decision to overturn Roe v. Wade.
5: Angie has made it easier
1: than ever to hire high-quality pros to get all your home service jobs done well. Whether it's routine maintenance and emergency repair or a dream project,
2: The U.S. Supreme Court has just
0: announced it will hear its biggest abortion case since overturning Roe v. Wade. At issue, whether to restrict nationwide access to a widely used abortion drug. CNN's chief legal affairs correspondent Paula Reed has the story.
6: The Supreme Court says it will consider whether to restrict access to a widely used abortion drug. Mifepristone, when taken with another drug, is one of the most commonly used methods of abortion in the U.S.
5: Has this abortion drug been on the market for more than two decades?
3: Yes, 23 years, I think.
5: And has it been used by millions of women during that period?
3: Uh, Many millions.
6: Right now, the drug remains available nationwide. The Supreme Court put on hold lower court rulings that would impose restrictions that abortion opponents would like.
0: I am concerned because uh, more than half of the abortions in this country are uh, medical, medicinal, uh, and these drugs have been legal in our country for years.
6: Last year, the conservative-leaning court overturned Roe v. Wade, altering the landscape of abortion rights in the US. Now, more than half of states outlaw or severely restrict the procedure. By agreeing to take up the case on Mifepristone, the court will once again wade into the abortion debate. A decision, which is expected by July, could put the justices in the middle of the presidential election. Thank you. Where abortion has become a
2: hot issue.
4: I'm pro-life. I believe in creating a culture of life.
2: Now you have this tremendous power to negotiate something, and something will be negotiated because we have to bring our country together on this issue.
0: court got Roe right 50 years ago. And I believe Congress should restore the protections of Roe v. Wade once and for all. Demand
6: abortion rights! Abortion battles are also heating up at the state level. This week, the Texas Supreme Court ruled against a woman who sued for the right to an abortion just hours after she fled the state to get her procedure. There's no outcome here that I take home my healthy baby girl, you know, so... Um, It's hard, you know. And this week, the Arizona Supreme Court heard arguments from abortion opponents who want to revert back to an 1864 state law banning nearly all abortions.
2: Abortion is health care. And what that means is that this court's decision will have a profound impact on the ability of pregnant Arizonans to access that health care.
6: State Supreme Courts in Wyoming and New Mexico are also hearing arguments this week on abortion restrictions. And in Michigan, Governor Gretchen Whitmer signed a bill to expand access and repealed a state insurance coverage requirement. Let's protect the freedom to make your own decisions without interference
7: from politicians, and let's get it done.
6: And the decision will come this summer in the middle of the presidential campaign season. So no matter what they decide, this case will impact millions of Americans. But Wolf, it will be especially important for the presidential frontrunners. Certainly
0: will. Thank you very much. Paula Reed reporting for us. Coming up, CNN's Dana Bash just dove into the abortion issue, Trump and much more with Republican presidential candidate who just scored one of the most coveted endorsements of this race, Nikki Haley. That's coming up next. Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley hit the campaign trail today with the New Hampshire governor, Chris Sununu, after picking up his key endorsement earlier, both sat down for a joint interview with CNN's Dana Bash. And Dana's joining us now live from Concord, New Hampshire. Dana, you pressed the former U.N. ambassador on Donald Trump's fitness for office. Tell us about that.
7: That's right, Wolf. Well, earlier this week, she was asked in a different interview uh, about Donald Trump, whether or not he was fit for office. And she said, yes, she does think he is fit for office. He shouldn't be president, but he is fit to be president. And when I when I asked her about that, asked her to clarify that, Wolf, uh, she suggested that she was talking about his mental capacity, his physical abilities. And then I asked this follow up question. So when you say fit to be president, that he is, you're talking about his age and his mental capacity. I think other people, particularly people here in New Hampshire, who are looking for somebody other than Donald Trump, don't think he's fit because of his approach, because of his personality, because of his policies. Do you think in those areas he's fit to be president?
8: I don't look at the personal side of things as much as I look what at, about the policy, at the policy like democracy. The reason that I'm running is because after I saw the fall of Afghanistan, after I saw inflation going through the roof, after I saw us lose the midterms so terribly, that's when I said, we have to run. When I look at the situation, the economy under Trump, was it good? Yes, but he put us at $8 trillion in debt to do it, and we're all paying the price for that. I look at the fact that I don't want a president who's going to praise dictators by saying Kim Jong-un is his friend, or praising the you know celebrating the 70th anniversary of the Chinese Communist Party, or sitting there saying Hezbollah is smart and hitting Netanyahu when his country's on its knees. With me, I have a different approach. No drama. No vendettas, no whining.
7: Pretty tough there on Donald Trump when it comes to some really fundamental policies and uh, pronouncements, like what he said about uh, Hezbollah after October 7th. Uh, still, she said that she understands, Wolf, that there are people here in New Hampshire uh, and around the country who don't think that she is tough enough on Donald Trump. Those who uh, don't like him and those who do like him thinks that they think that she goes too easy on him.
0: Interesting. I know, Dana, you also asked Nikki Haley about the U.S. Supreme Court now taking up the biggest abortion case since Dobbs. Tell us about that.
7: Well, we talk generally about abortion and the notion that she says that she agrees with the fact that states are dealing with abortion. I asked her about that case, Wolf, in Texas, uh, where a, a young mother of two uh, pregnant uh, sued to try to get a, an abortion because uh, the health of the of the fetus, she was told, uh, it was fatal. And I asked her about that. She said that women need to be treated more humanely. And so, again, I followed up on what that means when it comes to abortion policy. So how do you turn that compassion you talk about humanizing into policy? Because, I, like, it just for example, if you have states' rights, which I understand you both believe in on this issue, um, what do you say to a woman in a state like that who she was able to leave who
8: doesn't have the means to leave. I think what you're going to see happen in Texas is what you're going to see in some other states that went on the pro-life side is they're going to go and look at, okay, when you have the exceptions of rape, incest, life of the mother, medical Mm -hmm. conditions, like Texas had the medical side of it, is they're going to get more detailed on it. They're going to go and say, okay, how can we make sure? And should they? They should. They should look at when the situation between the doctor and the woman See something that's dangerous that might prevent her from having more babies or might be damaging to her body or something. I think you're going to see the medical board make a decision on where is that line. I think you're going to see that play out. Look, when you do something in a state, it's never perfect right off the bat. You learn how to tweak it. And I think all of these states need to tweak it in a way that our number one goal is how do you save as many babies as possible and support as many moms as possible?
0: Dana, excellent interview indeed. Dana Bash reporting for us. Thank you. I want to bring in two Thanks. of our political experts right now, CNN's Audie Cornish and Nia Malika Henderson. Nia Malika, uh, you heard Nikki Haley criticizing Trump on policy. Uh, how did you read that?
9: Well, listen, I think it's about as far as she's going to go. If you look at where the candidates in this race who are going up against Donald Trump, who are most critical of him, somebody like Chris Christie, it really isn't doing any good, right? Uh, Donald Trump in these early state polls, Iowa, New Hampshire, uh, South Carolina is still way, way up. So if you're Nikki Haley, you can sort of carve out this criticism of him on policy that isn't deeply personal and, and might turn off some of these voters that she is going to try to get at, at her. I think that the path she ha- has is consolidating the anti-Trump uh, vote, but to sort of overtake him completely, uh, she would need some of uh, those voters. It is a tall hill. I think, for her to climb, not only in Iowa and New Hampshire, but also her home state of South Carolina, where early polls are showing that even in that state, uh, Donald Trump is preferred to the former governor, Nikki Haley. It's
10: interesting that both she and Ron DeSantis are also attacking Trump on the economy, which is the thing that in matchups with Biden, voters are saying they remember. And you hear both of them using language saying, well, it was good, but... And they're trying to find some kind of, of weakness.
0: Now, speaking of DeSantis, uh, Governor DeSantis uh, today attacked Nikki Haley, and you probably heard him, uh, saying she won't be able to win over the conservative Republican base. Listen to this. Listen to this.
4: If it's a choice between Trump and Haley, conservatives are going to go with Trump. Uh, even the conservatives that are supporting me, say, in Iowa, uh, because they see me as a superior conservative alternative to Trump, they, they are not going to go... Uh, embrace a candidate who represents the failed uh, Republican establishment of yesteryear.
0: What do you think?
10: Um, He's following up on something you do hear from Steve Steve Bannon and other folks, which is uh, the sort of MAGA part of the party is not satisfied with a Nikki Haley. The problem is Ron DeSantis has not proven himself to be a more appealing MAGA candidate than Trump himself. I don't hear how this argument alters that problem.
0: It's interesting, me and Malika, Trump just weighed in on Governor Sununu's endorsement of Nikki Haley posting on his Truth Social site, he said this, this is Trump, now Sununu is unelectable in his own state and can back Nikki who has no chance of winning. What do you make
9: of that? Listen, I think we have seen uh, in sort of the Trump era of the Republican Party, these endorsements by officials for sort of more establishment uh, candidates hasn't really helped them. If you look how uh, Ron DeSantis is doing in Iowa, at least in early polls, uh, the endorsement from that governor there hasn't really helped him. So it's hard to imagine uh, that this uh, governor endorsing Nikki Haley, who I think is down by about 20 points in some of these uh, polls I've seen out of New Hampshire, I don't know that it's going to help her uh, very much. Much in terms of her real uh, fight in in overtaking Trump in these t- states. Add to
10: this, remember this is also about signaling to signaling to the rest of the group. Hey, it's time to drop out. Yeah, you know a lot of this is not just about the voters. It's like if there is a shot, this is a hail mary to say everyone like let's start to get behind a person and stop dividing this alternative to Trump That's vote. Important
0: point, guys. Thank you very much, uh, and be sure to tune in later tonight for the special CNN town hall with Vivek. Ramaswamy that begins at 9 p.m. Eastern only here on CNN. Just ahead, President Biden meeting face to face with families of American hostages held in Gaza. Up next, I'll speak with the parents of a young man kidnapped by Hamas about their meeting over at the White House today.
10: The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish
0: Today, for the first time, President Biden met in person with the families of the eight Americans believed to be held hostage in Gaza. They've been desperately awaiting answers for more than two months now. Among them, the parents of 22-year-old IDF soldier Omer Nutra, a dual Israeli American citizen. Orna and Ronan Nutra are with us right now. And thank you both of us for joining us. So, Orna, can you tell us, first of all, how the meeting with the president went today?
11: Well, um, he spent a lot of time with us. He's uh, very sincere and he was very compassionate. Um, he knows the stories by now. We felt that he knew exactly who we are and uh, who Omer is.
0: Do you think he specifically knew about Omer?
11: Absolutely. Really? I mean, he met with us before um, on Zoom right after the war, uh, right after October 7th, that same week. And, um, and he said, you know, he was very personal then and uh, I felt like we connected right away from that spot.
0: Interesting. And uh, Ronan, what was your message to the president today?
12: We really wanted to make sure that both the American administration and the Israeli administration are doing everything in their power to bring our kids back. It's been 68 days, 68 days that we don't know anything about the whereabouts of our son, and so many people are... Asking this, this, the same question: Where are our family members? How are they doing? There's no sign of life. We have no idea if they are wounded, if they are, uh, you know, in desperate need of, of medicine. It has. We have to see some progress here, and we want to make sure that that's what the administration is is doing. Yeah. Everything in their power let's, to, to let's bring them back. He
0: comes home soon. Did you get the sense, Orna, based on the meeting you had with the president today and other family members who were there as well? THAT uh, YOU'RE MORE ENCOURAGED, MORE HOPEFUL NOW THAT YOUR SON WILL BE FREED?
11: I, I THINK IT WAS ONE MESSAGE THAT CAME CLEAR FOR THE PRESIDENT IS THAT WE NEED TO STAY HOPEFUL. AND I TOOK THAT TO HEART. Um, THE ADMINISTRATION IS DOING A LOT. WE NEED TO MAKE SURE THAT um, THE NEGOTIATIONS RESTART uh, TO BRING THE HOSTAGES HOME. IT'S URGENT, LIKE ONE end SAID
0: certainly is, it's yeah. so painful. My heart goes out yeah. to, to both of you, Ronan. CNN is learning that Hamas is not responding at all to the latest attempts to try to restart uh, the negotiations, to, to impose another little pause, for example. Uh, and so they're, they're not, they don't wanna free any more of the women specifically uh, uh, before other groups. So what, what is your reaction to that?
12: I'm just hopeful that the, uh, the pressure that has been put on the leadership in the area whether it's uh, Qatar, whether it's Egypt, whether it's Israel, uh, with the sponsorship of the United States of America is gonna bear fruit and soon we're gonna start seeing some renegotiation going on. And uh, hopefully uh, all the hostages will be released among them, the eight American hostages that it's time to bring them home.
0: What would you like the world, and we have viewers all over the world right now. Orna, what would you like the world to know about Omer
11: Omer is, has a big heart. He's a real connector. Um, he makes people feel seen. I've been hearing that for so many, uh, kids that he's had, um, connection with them. Um, you know, it's, we're ending Hanukkah now and, uh, we need a miracle. We're heading into the holiday season. Um, you know, we, we really feel that it's time for, to make things happen.
0: I hope he comes home soon. Thanks to both of you very much. Good luck. Uh, I really appreciate your joining us for Thank this you. conversation. Coming up, uh, a CNN-exclusive new audio of critical witness testimony in the Trump fake elector's investigation. The lawyer, Kenneth Chesbrough, sharing new details with prosecutors about then-President Trump's briefing on the scheme to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Tonight we have exclusive new reporting on key witness testimony on Donald Trump and the 2020 fake electorist plot. CNN obtaining audio of Michigan prosecutors interviewing Kenneth Chesbro, the lawyer who helped devise the scheme. CNN's Marshall Cohn broke the story for us. He's joining us now live. Marshall, what did Chesbro tell investigators and how significant is this?
13: Hey Wolf, Chesbro described what he called a photo op gone wrong. This was back in December, 2020. He was in the Oval Office with a group of attorneys from Wisconsin who had just unsuccessfully tried to overturn the results in that state. Before they went in for this photo op, they were told, do not give Trump any hope about overturning the election. Do not indulge this idea that somehow he could still win. Wolf, some of the people in the room followed that instruction some people didn't. Let me play for you this first clip of Chesborough describing what Trump's lead attorney in Wisconsin, Jim Troopas, told the president about that state.
0: It's clear that um, Troopas personally told the president there was zero hope for Wisconsin. As part of this message, I, I think, crafted to try to get
14: him to concede, to just you know, give up this, this, this long shot challenge. So there was a there was a conscious effort to Um, deflect him from a sense of any possibility
12: that he could pull out the election.
13: Zero hope doesn't get stronger than that but then the conversation shifted to Arizona and that's when Chesborough chimed in. He had a very different take on the situation and started actually briefing Trump about the fake electors scheme that he had helped devise. Here's Chesborough describing what he told the president.
0: I,
14: I ended up explaining that Arizona was still hypothetically possible because the alternate electors had voted, and I explained the whole logic. Because the alternate electors had voted, we had more time to win the litigation. So he, so it was, I think, clear in a way
0: that maybe it hadn't been before that we had till January sixth to,
13: to win. So this is critical new evidence from a very important witness who was there with Donald Trump. Look, Trump could use some of that to help his criminal case in D.C. that Jack Smith filed. uh, He could argue that some people, trusted people, lawyers like Ken Chesborough, were telling him to keep fighting, but you can't ignore the other part of that conversation where he was told that he lost over and over and over. The indictment is filled with those examples. That's why prosecutors say that Trump knew he lost, but tried to stay in power anyway. Wolf.
0: Very strong reporting, Marshall. Thank you very much, Marshall Cohn, reporting for us. There's other important news We're following tonight a visibly shaken Georgia election worker testifying about the racist messages and threats she received after she was smeared by Rudy Giuliani in the aftermath of the 2020 election. Brian Todd is looking into this important story for us. Brian, the testimony from yesterday
15: was already very disturbing How bad did it get today? It got just as bad or worse, Wolf, today. It was Ruby Freeman's turn to testify after her daughter, also a former Georgia election worker, took the stand yesterday. And Freeman's accounts today were horrifying. We have to warn viewers that some audio in this piece is disturbing. The truth will come out. Tonight, more damning testimony against former Trump attorney Rudy Giuliani. Ruby Freeman, a former election worker in Georgia, read for the jury some of the racist, threatening messages she received after Giuliani's public statements in the wake of the 2020 election. Statements targeting her and her daughter, fellow election worker Shea Moss. Appearing visibly shaken on the stand, Freeman read a message saying, quote, hope they lock you up and throw away the key, you disgusting, expletive traitor.
3: Their testimony is extremely compelling. They present an emotional picture. They were a volunteer and a temporary employee. They were working on elections and the administration of elections, and they had to move out of their homes. They were the subject of intense threats to their physical harm, to their physical
15: safety. Freeman read another message, quote, pack your S. They are coming for you. I'm not far behind. I'm coming for you also. Trash will be taken to the street in bags. Then Freeman herself said, I took it as though they were going to cut me up and put me into trash bags and take it out to my street. Also today, a recording was played in court of a call between former President Donald Trump and Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. A call made in January 2021, where Trump mentions Freeman's name 18 times while attacking her.
2: Ruby Freeman, she's a vote scammer. A professional vote scammer and hustler, Ruby Freeman.
15: This follows testimony from her daughter, Shay Moss, yesterday about the threats they've received and the playing in court of threatening voicemails sent to both mother and daughter.
8: Have a nice life, rest of it you have. You're all going to f- jail, you piece
15: of s***. F- Giuliani falsely accused Freeman and Moss of changing votes in Georgia right after the 2020 presidential election. Now they're suing him and the judge in this case has already ruled that Giuliani defamed them. The jury is weighing whether to award Freeman and Moss between fifteen point five million and forty three million dollars for the reputational harm they suffered from Giuliani's statements and more for the emotional distress they've endured. Last year they testified to the House January 6th committee about that.
9: I've lost my name and I've lost my reputation. I've lost my sense of
15: security. What we don't think about is this unequal kind of power dynamic that's going on here when you have someone with that kind of a huge platform and that fame saying something about someone who has no way to defend themselves on that kind of platform. So you're really seeing that effect here of Shay Moss told the jury that even now she continues to face threats despite her efforts to conceal her personal information from the public. She said, quote, they have found my new home, and that recently people have sent clippings of cut-up pictures of her face to her in the mail. Wolf, tomorrow Rudy Giuliani is expected to take the stand in his own defense.
0: Very disturbing indeed, Brian Todd. Thank you very, very much. Coming up, nearly 200 countries are agreeing to a landmark climate deal which calls for a transition away from fossil fuels. But some activists say it's being undermined by loopholes. A record-setting close on Wall Street today, the Dow hitting an all-time high, gaining more than 500 points to surpass 37,000, the first time it has ever reached that mark. That surge coming after the Federal Reserve left interest rates unchanged today amid new data showing inflation here in the United States is now cooling. Also, tonight, nearly 200 countries have just agreed to an unprecedented new climate deal, which calls for transitioning away from fossil fuels. But critics say the agreement contains loopholes that could allow some countries to take minimal action. CNN's chief climate correspondent Bill Weir is joining us right now. Bill,
14: so what does this deal entail? Uh, Well, Wolf, the big debate in in Dubai the last couple weeks is, will they or won't they have the words phase out or phase down of fossil fuels in the final declaration? That got watered down thanks to the lobbying of places like Saudi Arabia and Kuwait, oil states, petrostates. The final language says that the world will transition away from fossil fuels, but it's really nebulous language. There's a lot of loopholes uh, for countries like Saudi Arabia, for example to keep burning and selling fossil fuels uh, for as as long as they really want, as long as they're sort of trying to ramp up solar and other renewable powers at the same time. This declaration lays out eight different pathways that a country could contribute to a net zero world uh, by 2050. But I talked to Michael Mann, the esteemed uh, climate scientist at Penn State today, and he said, this is kind of like your doctor telling you you're dying of diabetes, and you're telling the doctor, well, then I'm going to transition off of donuts over time, it, it, it has to end. The fossil fuel burning has to end at a certain point for the problem uh, to, to stabilize right now. And at current rates, the world is decarbonizing at the rate of maybe 10% by 2030. It needs to be over 40%, the scientists say. And so this really gives cover to big oil companies and, and petro-states to stay with business as usual. The small island nations most vulnerable to climate change weren't even in the room as the gavel came down. They said this honestly won't get it done. Wolf? Bill, we are reporting for us. Thank you very much.
0: And to our viewers, thanks very much for watching. I'm Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. Aaron
2: Burnett Out Front starts right now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at four seven zero three nine six zero eight three two